We've been talking about the Trinity and been trying to help understand that the doctrine of the Trinity is far more pertinent to our daily lives than a lot of people realize. Uh, we've been trying to demonstrate this over the last few weeks and that, that if we understand the relationships in the Trinity and how they function together, while, while they are very difficult, it can still give us some indication as how we are to conduct our own personal relationships. And that's what we want to do with this teaching. We want to allow it to filter down into how we get along with uh, the people close to us and the people that we live and, and work with as well. And if we can do that, the doctrine of the Trinity becomes more than just an academic exercise, an effort to try and understand something. It becomes a guideline for how we can walk as Christians. So all this is based on three phrases. We're familiar with them by now, but I'm going to go over them one more time. Here's the doctrine of the Trinity. There is only one God. God is three persons, and each person is fully God. Now, our teaching over the last three weeks, each week has examined some aspect of the Trinity. In week one, we looked at the equality of the Trinity. In week two, we looked at the roles of the persons in the Trinity. And this week, we're going to look at the unity of the Trinity. So instead of looking at the individual persons of the Trinity, as some of the titles may have led you, I apologize for that, We've been looking at the character and the nature of all the persons and how they relate to each other and how they function as one. Now, going in, and I'll keep reminding you, this, for, for, this is hard to understand. Some of it is impossible to understand. We want to be clear on that. But I'll share this with you because I've been looking at this for a long time. This is, this is one of those itches that the more you scratch it, the better it feels. Have you ever had one of those? And let, let me explain what I'm talking about. The more we study the Trinity, the more we stand in awe of a God that can function this way. The, the result of that is that the study can either fascinate us or it can frustrate us. And we're going to talk a little bit about that a little later. I'm going to tell you why it can be fascinating or frustrating and maybe, maybe help you to understand why you're in one camp or the other on this. So I want to do a quick recap so we can go, go in with context here. In week one, we looked at the equality of the Trinity, and we saw two important characteristics of the Godhead. The Godhead is another word for the Trinity. And we should keep these, these things in mind at all times. One we can understand the other we can't. The one we can't understand is this. The Trinity is made up of three persons who are in every way equal to each other. They're not only equal to each other, they are of the same essence. In other words, they are one being, even though they're three persons. And again, that one will give you a headache if you try to absorb it too hard. That's one of the points that's just hard for us to understand. But the second point and we can kind of glaze over this. If we don't linger on this, we're not going to get the point of the teaching. The second point puts everything into perspective about the Trinity. Each person in the Trinity works to bring glory to the other two. Each person in the Trinity works to bring glory to the other two. That means that our traditional ideas 
about what goes on in heaven and how it functions usually kind of lend themselves as to who's in control and who has the authority and the power. All of those ideas have to go out the window with this. We have to set them aside. We have to consciously put them aside. As we ponder the three persons of the Godhead working to bring glory to each other. In week two, we looked at the roles of each of those persons in the Godhead. And here's what we saw. God the Father is the sender. He sends God the Son and God the Spirit. God the Son is the Savior. He saves those who belong to God the Father. And God the Holy Spirit is the helper which kind of moves all this process along. He draws people into salvation. So, we can conclude from our first two weeks that all the members of the Trinity are not only equal, but essential to God's plan of salvation. That's why the roles are important. A plan is designed to reveal God's glory. They are equal, they are essential, and they are one. Now, we're going to talk about that oneness this week. We're going to talk about the unity of the Trinity, their complete oneness. I want to show you three more characteristics of the Trinity These having to do with their unity. They are one in essence. They are one in attributes. We'll talk about what attributes are. And they are one in their consistency. And we'll explain what that is as well. Let's take a look at the first of our three. The three persons of the Trinity are one in essence. Now we've talked a little bit about this. We're going to go a little bit deeper this morning. Essentially, what this means is that they're one in all ways. Now, they're not a team. They're not a collective. For science fiction fans, it's not like the Borg. There's a whole bunch of them out there, and somehow they're communicating with each other. They are one being with one nature, and all they do, they do as one. Now, we're familiar with what the Jews call the Shema. Uh, it's a basic foundational belief of the Jews, and that oneness shows up in the beginning of the Shema. And that's in Deuteronomy 6, 4, where we hear these familiar words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, there's more to the Shema, but we're just looking at this opening phrase here. Hebrew uh, word for Lord here is Yahweh, or Jehovah, God's proper Jewish name. It is singular. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the singular Yahweh, is one. But the word used for God, the Lord our God, is Elohim. And that's plural. So right here in the opening phrase of the Shema, the plural name is used to describe the one true God. And so we hear the singular Lord is the plural God. Now that, again, that'll, that'll stretch your mind a little bit as you try to absorb that. But it's an important point. It's so important that Jesus thought it was vitally important. He repeats this in Mark chapter 12. When they ask him what the most important commandment is, he starts out by saying in verse 29, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He starts out with a teaching that is Trinitarian in nature. Paul makes it crystal clear in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3.20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Paul brings it up again with even more clarity 
in his letter to the Ephesians. We heard this a little bit earlier. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So I think that the point is clear. And I think we have a, a foundational representation of it here. But I want to amp it up just a little bit. I want to go a little bit more intense on this and look at the fact that they are all one, but they are all one and how that is expressed in their work as well, how they function. Romans 8 9 demonstrates their oneness. Listen to this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That is some heavy stuff. And that's one of those verses you look over and go, oh yeah, I got it. But look at everything that's in here. If, if, if you look at this verse trying to figure out the different functions of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's going to cross your eyes. But if you look at the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit as one, you can see that they're doing one work here. They're taking step by step. They're doing the same job. Look what they do together as one, looking back at the verse. They dwell in believers as one. They cause believers to belong to God as one. They bring life as one. They bring righteousness as one. They raised Jesus from the dead as one. They're totally united in the work that they do because they are of one essence. It's our first characteristic of the Trinity. Our second is that they are one in their attributes. Now, that's a word that we use a lot. We talk a lot about what, what are attributes? Attributes are gifts or, or abilities. John's attribute is to catechize. So yeah, that's a simple way of explaining this. But our attributes as human beings are what make us the unique individuals that we are. God's attributes are those things that make him uniquely God. They are his identifiers, as if he needed identifiers. He doesn't, but it's how we perceive him. Scripture tells us that although the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have different roles in the Trinity, each of them have the same attributes, the same gifts. Here are some of the primary attributes that, that they share in their equality. They are eternal. They are all-knowing. They are holy. They are called sometimes Lord, sometimes God, Lord and God. They are glorious. I'm going to take a peek at the first one here. They are eternal. It doesn't mean that they, they, they had a beginning and they're going to last forever. It means that they have always existed and will always exist. Romans 16:26. This has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. God, Paul uses the word theos here. 
and in other places to the Jew, it meant the one true God. We hear God, we hear Theos, and we think, oh, God the Father. But when Paul and the other apostles talk about God the Father, they use patros. They use a different word. They use the term patros. So in Romans 16, 26, we see that the one triune God is eternal. Isaiah tells us that the Father is eternal. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hopes through grace, and it goes on from there, God our Father. The Father gave eternal comfort here in 2 Thessalonians. It's an active verb. It means that the Father gave it and is still giving it. It goes on, continuous action. By nature, an eternal gift of that nature can only come from an eternal being. God the Son is eternal as well. Matter of fact, we just saw that in Isaiah 9. It tells us the Son is given and He'll be called Everlasting Father. Did you catch that? The Son will be called Everlasting Father. Again, these are things that, if, unless, unless we're reading them carefully, uh, we can glaze over them and not see how important they are. God the Father is eternal. God the Son is eternal. Well, so is God the Spirit. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's a capitalized S for spirit again, indicating that this is a person. This is, this is the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are eternal, and you know what? They're all-knowing as well. It's our next attribute here. Isaiah 40, 13 through 4. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? and showed him the way of understanding. The Spirit of the Lord is immeasurable. He's all-knowing. The Son is all-knowing. John 21, 17. And he said to him the third time, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. Now, there's another familiar verse that we, we look and we go, oh, that just meant that Peter said, yeah, you know, I love you. But the, the wording is literal here, and it's very purposeful. He says, Lord, you know everything. And what he means is, Lord, you know everything. <laughs> you know everything. You have all knowledge. All knowledge is in you. Paul tells us the Spirit knows everything as well. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. For the Spirit, capital S, searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thought of God except the Spirit of God. Those two verses affirm the unity and all-knowing nature of God and the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are all-knowing. 
second attribute that they share. And I know, for those of you that are familiar with Scripture, are thinking right now, I don't know, John, what do you do about Matthew 24? Matthew 24, 36, which says this, of Jesus Christ, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into this because we could spend the whole sermon hour on how this works. But there are times when Jesus is called the Son of God. There are times when he's called the Son of Man. We know already because we established in week one that Jesus is fully God and fully man all the time. He's not switching off from one to the other. We also know from Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 7, that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by becoming human. Now, because of the other scriptures that we've studied, we know that that doesn't mean that he stopped being God. Rather, what Paul is implying in Philippians is that there are times when Jesus, as a man, chooses not to exercise all of his divine attributes in order to do the work that he came to do. He had to be the mediator. He had to be God, and he had to be man at the same time. He came to mediate the relationship between God and man. Now, you may go, oh, I don't know if I accept that. That's a little deep. I kind of like the idea of him switching off and on. But we've seen it before. We just didn't realize that we've seen it. We see it every time we, we talk about Jesus. We saw it every time that he sat down for a meal. As God, he, needed, he had no need for sustenance. He's totally self-sustaining. As a man, he needed food. He chose not to exercise his self-sustaining nature and to eat as a man to show us his humanness, even though he was fully God. We saw it again in the, in the garden, didn't we? Jesus chose not to exercise his divine sovereign authority over all of creation by being obedient, even unto the cross. We see it in, in Mark it, it, when he's choosing as a man not to know the date of the last day. I can't figure out how that works. My mind's not light working like that, but it's what the Scripture says. So he chooses not to know the last day, even though he's an all-knowing God because the other Scriptures affirm that. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all-knowing. You know what? They're that, and they're holy. The next attribute. The Father is holy, John 17, 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, this is Jesus. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus declares the Father to be holy. The Father's holy, the Son is holy. Peter says so while he's preaching to the, the men of Israel in the temple. Okay, He says this in Acts 3, 14. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. You denied, he's talking to Jesus, you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. Now, it should go without saying that the Holy Spirit is holy. It's part of his name. Right? It couldn't be more clear than that. But just in case it wasn't, we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit, capital S, of holiness by his resurrection. All three are holy. That means that they are perfect, 
pure and fully worthy of all praise. Next attribute is kind of interesting because they all go by the name of Lord and or God. We see it at various times throughout the scripture. Each person is called Lord and or God. We see it said of the Father in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist. The Father is God, but so is the Son. After touching his wounds, Thomas says this of Christ, my Lord and my God. There are both names right there. Peter says it too. 2 Peter 1.1 I, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We hear a spirit called Lord and God in Acts. Luke says this in Acts 5, 3, and 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived the deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. He's lied to the Holy Spirit, the same as lying to God. Paul calls his Holy Spirit Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not only are they called by the same name, Lord and God, they're all glorious. The fourth attribute, they're glorious. We see the glory of, of the Father in Paul's letter to Ephesians. Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord and Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, Jesus Christ, comma, the Father of glory, it's the same name, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the glory of the Son is described by John, John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, incarnation, which we later find out is Jesus Christ, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul speaks of the glory of the Holy Spirit. First Peter 4, I'm sorry, Peter does. First Peter 4.14. If you are ins insulted for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the Spirit, capital S, of glory and God rests upon you. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are glorious. They share all the same attributes. They are eternal. They are all-knowing. They are holy. They are called Lord and God, and they are glorious. So, so far this morning, what we've seen is within the unity of the Trinity in their essence and in their attributes. I want to take a close look at their consistency. And by consistency, I mean that all of God's triune characteristics are consistent and united with each other. There are no contradictions. There are no variances. They are totally, perfectly consistent and in total harmony with each other. Let me go a little bit deeper here. God is united, consistent, and in harmony in 
all of his attributes. That includes being united and consistent and in harmony in love and justice, which we don't weigh together real well. But even more importantly, and maybe with a little bit more impact, he is totally consistent and in harmony in mercy and his wrath. And he is all those things at the same time. Let's take a look at his love and justice. Let me show you what I'm talking about. God takes his people out to the, the uh, wilderness. He delivers them from Egypt. He takes them to Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain getting the law. The people are downstairs. What are they doing? They're having a party. They're having a party. They make a golden calf and totally begin worshiping an idol. And then we see this interaction between God and Moses. Listen carefully here. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. I like that. That is the God that saves. That is the God that is merciful and gracious and forgiving. But that's not where the verse ends because there's a comma right after transgression for sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's scary. We see his love and his mercy and his grace in the first half of the passage. We see that he will redeem and we have hope, but we see that the love and mercy and grace is perfectly balanced with justice. Those who sin will pay. We see something very similar when God restates his covenant with David and the lineage of David. 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commands iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my, listen, I will discipline him with the rod and with stripes, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Wow. God loves us even as he disciplines us. Some of your parents get that. Some of your parents have had to discipline your child, children. You understand that. But you know what? If you were a parent like me, I didn't discipline my kids very well all the time. Sometimes I disciplined them out of anger. Sometimes I disciplined them out of selfishness. God's discipline, God's love are absolutely perfect. They are flawless. And they are flawless all the time and they function simultaneously. We see love and justice in Romans. Paul speaks of the sacrifice of Christ, the ultimate expression of love and justice. Romans 3, 25. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He's talking about Jesus Christ. To be received by faith. There was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, so that he might be, listen, just the one who judges, 
and justifier, the one who reconciles, or the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He's both of them at the same time. God is fully united, consistent and in harmony and love and justice. Here's one that's even more difficult to accept. God is consistent and in harmony and united in his mercy and his wrath at the same time. Listen to the words of Joel, chapter 2, 11 through 13. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Now, what Joel the prophet just said is the day of the Lord is a terrifying thing. That's what he means when it is awesome and who can endure it. This will strike fear into the core of your being. Next verse. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's incredible. Wrath and mercy at the same time. God's wrath is fearsome and His mercy is great. Matter of fact, His wrath is as fearsome as His mercy is great. We see the perfect balance of wrath and mercy at the cross. We see it all happen at one time. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Love, mercy, wrath, justice, they all exist in all three persons of the Godhead. And they exist in Him all the time. God doesn't phase between one and the other. We know that's true because we've already learned that He's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's all of these things. All three of these persons. And they are all in every way united as one. So here's what we've seen today in the unity of the Trinity. They're one in their essence, they are one in their attributes, and they are one in their consistency. They're totally, irrevocably, eternally united in essence. And in, in, in every way, in every way that we can imagine, and quite probably in ways that we can't even conceive of. They exist in complete harmony with each other. They share the same attributes. They have the same nature. They're working together, using those attributes, what? Not for their own glory, but for each other's glory. And their characteristics are in perfect harmony with each other. So, what have we seen over the last three weeks? Let's kind of bring all this home. The persons of the Trinity are equal in all ways, but they have unique roles that they play in their equality. Their equality doesn't go away because they assume roles. They are perfectly united and in harmony in those roles. Now, thinking about that, 
will either fascinate you or frustrate you. If you feel you have to figure it out, if you need to make this into a diagram, you need to put it up on a wall and go, okay, I get it. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be frustrated because it is unfathomable. There are things about God that, that we just don't understand. Okay, Everything we've said over the last three weeks is true. You go back to the handouts and look at it. It's all there. It seems at odds with each other, but you know what? It's what God says about himself. If we believe that all Scripture is inspired, that all Scripture is breathed by God, then we have to believe what this says about him. Which means that we have to accept it in faith because we can't understand it. Did you hear that? We have to accept it in faith. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to figure it out. There's nothing wrong with pondering it and studying it. But if you feel that it's not true because you can't figure it out, you're going to end up very frustrated. If you accept it in faith and continue to study it, something wonderful is going to happen. I'll guarantee you, you're going to begin to get glimpses of the glory of God. (laughs) It will drive you to your knees going, this is such an awesome God. He is beyond my understanding. He is unfathomable. I don't get it all, but I can see that he says it about himself. I can hardly wait to be in his presence so that I can understand more about him. If you take that approach to it, you'll spend the rest of your life studying these things and being more and more enriched and more and more drawn towards the Father. And the side benefit is you learn more and more about His Word. Okay. I like the awe and glory of God. What what, what do we do with the thought? How How does it impact us today? Well, as I think about it, if I accept it on faith, it sounds to me like a perfect relationship, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound just absolutely, stunningly beautiful? Equality, unity, harmony. I mean, that's what we're looking for in our personal relationships. God's got it. Sounds like a perfect relationship. It is. It is a perfect relationship. And it's where you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are headed. We are being molded and conformed into this image, shaped into a likeness that is an eternal oneness with the Trinity. That's where we're headed. I love that. It's a promise that will get me through my troubles today. I might not feel in harmony today, but I'm headed for it. I like that. But what does it mean to me right now? What does it mean as I walk out that door? It means everything. It means everything. We're told to imitate Christ. He is at one with this Trinity. This is how he relates to the Trinity. This is how we are to express our equality. This is how we are to conduct our roles. This is how we are to live in unity with each other. As we are being shaped by Him, it's not about the things that we think it's about. It's not about who's in charge. It's not about who has authority. And we could look at that and go, well, maybe that works out here in the country. But you know something? It has to work at the most personal of our relationships. 
It has to work at the most intimate level that we experience because that's how it works in the Trinity. So it has to work at home. I don't know about that. What happens at home? What happens in our church? What happens in our community? You see, this is all about how we give glory to each other. This is how we function as His body, working together in complete harmony, using our gift, recognizing our oneness, and in doing that, bringing glory and honor to God, calling attention to who God is and what His character and nature is. That requires an attitude adjustment. For a lot of us, we just got to rethink things. We got to figure out how it works in my heart, how it works in my home. Husbands are not the king of the house. They're not the controllers. They're the ones who serve. Now, I said this a couple weeks ago. I saw a bunch of women going, did you hear that? And the ones that weren't doing this were looking. Well, listen to this. That's true of the husbands. They're not the king. They're not the controllers. But you know what? It's true of the wives. The wives can no longer be frustrated with their husbands. The members of the Trinity are not frustrated with each other. They're not putting expectations upon each other. The wives are servers too. Children need to be honored, but they need to honor as well. Bosses and teachers need to be respected, even if they're not admired. They need to be respected. Employees need to be treated as more important. People that are walking in the hallway need to be treated as something special worthy of God's glory. The unity and the harmony of the Trinity should come flowing out of us like rivers of living water catching up the lost in their flow of the same grace that caught us up in its current as well and carried us towards God. That requires some effort. You've heard it before. Some participation is required. Why? Because we're still being sanctified. We don't have this right. We know we don't have it right. We're still being made holy. We are still under construction. And we have a part to play in that. But God, God bless Him. Praise God for the grace He has. God sees the perfect work of Christ in us and chooses to regard that work as completed even as it is being completed. While we see ourselves in a process which is a good perspective, God sees us as completely, perfectly finished. Perfected by the reality that His Son is in us. Both perspectives are completely true. We're in process, yet our perfection is assured. And it's assured because the Trinity works the way it works. It's assured because God the Father sent God the Son. And God the Son saved. And God the Father and God the Son sent God the Spirit as our helper to draw us into that salvation. All three of them working together to unite us the way they're united. Amen. Amen.